Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a brand new podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of film. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me here today, as always, Sean Baker. And today we're going to be discussing the 2018 film, The Hate You Give. So this is a film that is still relevant today, unfortunately. I mean, you see what's what the topic and what it's exploring in this film, and it's hard to not connect it to not only what's going on right now currently across America, but what's been going on roughly for the past five, six years when you've heard the names, even Trayvon Martin or Freddie Gray here in Baltimore. It's still a film that it's still relevant it's relevant and it's unfortunate that it is relevant but yeah it just we, we it's a, it's a situation that keeps popping up unfortunately yeah um what i found interesting kind of looking at the backstory uh on of of the novel of the same name that it was based on the uh author angie thomas uh grew up in a neighborhood similar to the the neighborhood she uh, uh portrays in in, in her novel and uh, she, her mother pushed her very hard to, you know, get a college education, um, uh, kind of break the cycle. So she did. She, she got a college degree and she became a writer. And she was thinking about what her, what her subject for her first novel would be. And, and her, her kind of lane of work is uh, uh, fiction for teenagers. And right about the time the Trayvon Martin thing happened, she had been planning on doing some sort of a fantasy novel. And I think that's reflected in this film with the Harry Potter thing. That, as far as yeah, I know, yeah. that's in the book too. Okay. But when that happened, she thought about her own background and uh, uh, Trayvon Martin's background and some other people that had been um, uh, uh, killed by policemen. And thought, you know, maybe I can do something with that uh, that will uh, not only make a good novel, but will serve a useful purpose to get people to understand people that don't live in our our, our neighborhoods or haven't grown up black uh, to kind of realize the day to day um, challenges and difficulties in living in a predominantly white culture. Um, so she thought she'd do a service. And I think she's done a good service with, with mm-hmm. that novel Definitely. Um, by writing the story. The, I think the, the strength of this sort of a novel being aimed at youth, I think, is that it, it will allow them to come at some old problems that have you know, been plaguing this country uh, for hundreds of years, right? Uh, f- fresh and hopefully able to deal with them um, by recognizing the complexities that are involved. Um, I think I think the uh, I th- I think the uh, story does a good job of, of recognizing those complexities and portraying them. Um, not only in the fact that uh, the main character, Star Carter, is kind of living a dual life, right? Uh, not only that, but you see uh, the fact that her uncle is a policeman, 
obviously a black policeman. And dealing with, there's a very powerful scene where he gives her the point of view of the policeman. Um, we don't see much from the point of view of the white policeman that kills her her uh, friend Khalil, which is the mm-hmm. central you know, event in this story, that the hinge upon which everything rotates. Um, you see him realize he's made a terrible mistake and begin to panic and so forth. But that's about all you see. Mm-hmm. And you, you see throughout the film her, I would say, inability to see the policeman's point of view, right? Um, but the uncle, tell, in that one scene, I think it's probably the most powerful scene in the film for mm-hmm. me, in that one scene, she says, he says, look, you've got to realize that when you're a policeman in, in the uh, highly charged moment when you've got somebody that you've pulled over who is not cooperating, who's arguing, who's moving around the vehicle and doing things like that, um, he says, I, I think the exact line is, I've got to shoot. I've got to shoot. Mm-hmm. I w-, he says, I would have done the same thing if I was in that position. But then she asks him a very interesting question. She says, assume that the person you pulled over is in a Mercedes Benz. He's white and he's acting the exact same way. He reaches into his open window and you think, Oh my God, he's going for a weapon or something like that. Would you a shoot like you just told me you would for the black guy or B would you tell him to stop? He thinks about it and he says in that situation, I would tell him to stop. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that tell us about the police force, the presuppositions they are working with? It tells you that I think he's admitting that there is a certain amount of unavoidable, probably just because of experience, uh, racial profiling going on in police forces, regardless of the race of the police officer. And it's quite an admission, but it's also something very important to point out because <clears throat> undoubtedly it does go on. It's, it's human nature to, especially if you're working in, in, a, in, a, in a position like that, where you've, you see patterns of behavior mm-hmm. um, within certain areas of the town, uh, you're going to be primed. For having to deal with that and think, oh my God, I've got another example of this. I've got to do something. I've got to shoot or whatever, right? Uh, we see similar sorts of things happen in military contexts. There have been cases uh, in the recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan where people were people once again of of the racial group that usually will carry out IED attacks or something like that behave in ways that are typical of uh, vehicular bombers or something like that. Troops see that they react in an instant because sometimes that's all you have to do is to react in an instant and end up shooting innocent people. There were, uh, 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 some uh, very tragic cases. We had a, a case about in the military ethics case competition about five years ago of, uh, uh um, roadblocks being set up in Iraq and uh, vehicles would approach these roadblocks and behave in, in certain ways and not stop. And uh, the, the, the guys that were guarding these, 
very often gates at, at posts of military uh, installations uh, were, were required to shoot once they got beyond a certain point. And it turned out, according to uh, General John Sattler, who wrote the case, uh, they would do after-action investigations. And lo and behold, about 85 to 90 percent of those cases were cases of civilians, confused civilians, mm-hmm. um, just not understanding that all that was going on was uh, attempts to stop them from penetrating a no-go line. Um, so this is a universal thing, um, and it's something that police forces and military forces are, are constantly grappling with and in training and, and trying to obviously avoid the killing of innocent people. And it's what I was talking about earlier with how it's the YA is going to difference young adult. It's also um, one of many recent films that are exploring very similar topics. Um, the same year this movie came out, there was another film, Blind Spotting, and it takes place in Oakland. And the main character is a man who's on parole, and while he's driving one night, he sees the police shoot an unarmed black man. And he's just wondering what, he sort of has PTSD of what to do about it. A film from 2013 called Fruitvale Station. This was the true story of a man, also in Oakland, who was pulled over by police at a subway station and shot he was unarmed and then there was last year there was queen and slim which is a fictional movie but it's a couple they pulled over by police um there's an argument going out and they kill one of the police officers and they go on the run and then there was also in 2017 uh the movie detroit which is a retelling of the 1967 detroit riots mainly the algiers motel incident where police did kill an unarmed uh, unarmed black man so it's one of many movies that you are seeing now because of all the unrest that's been going on the last five six years that are really exploring this topic yeah, um, and I think that uh, I think that's no mistake. I think uh, over there's been kind of a kind of a critical mass developing in in this regard, in in regard to police brutality and black people, that mirrors to some extent the '60s. Yes. I think I think you're very on uh, on spot spot on there. Uh, 1968 I think has a lot of similarities to 2020. And it's a good thing we're exploring these things. And I know it's a good thing that um, police departments and the federal government are working together to attempt to alleviate these sorts of things. Because, uh, you know, we do not need it to be tearing this country apart. During the 60s, our enemies, particularly uh, the people uh, we were fighting in Vietnam at the time, were actively rooting for our country to fall apart and actively using as a very cynical tool the fact of racial unrest. Mm-hmm. And uh, an, another project we're working on here at the Stockdale Center uh, has to do with the uh, story of 18 POWs, uh, interviews, 18 POWs that were held in the Hanoi prison system at the time. Um, among them were several black POWs. And they were particularly targeted for uh, propaganda purposes. They were thinking maybe these guys would be easy catches. We can get them to come over to our side and propagandize for us. For the interests of the country, and by the way, they did.
did not buckle under that kind of pressure and that kind of propaganda. Uh, it's a particularly stirring story of Fred Cherry, an Air Force uh, a POW, and uh, uh, Porter Halliburton, a, a naval POW, who were housed together in the same cell for approximately a year by the Viet Vietnamese expressly for the purpose, I think, of creating discord between the two because Porter Halliburton was a man from the Old South. Fred Cherry, a black officer. And the way things developed was exactly the opposite of what the Vietnamese expected. These two became fast friends, supported each other and the rest of the POWs in their resistance efforts. And uh, when they came back, they actually spoke together on several occasions on racial divide, among other things. So um, I, I'm seeing that kind of a resonance yeah. between this present period in our history and that period. And it, it actually, it's, a, it's a, to be honest, a little scary. But at the same time, I think there's some hope just in the fact that we have these uh, discussions and yeah. these pieces of uh, works of fiction that to explore these things yeah. honestly. Getting back to uh, the art of the movie, um, the main like theme of the movie, which is in the title, it's uh, sort of a phrase used by the rapper Tupac. And I actually didn't know this until then because I heard of thug life, but I just thought it was like a blanket term for like being a badass. I didn't actually know it was an acronym. And thug life means the hate you give, little infants, Fs, everybody. What children inherit or you know, prejudice or anger will come back to bite everyone later on when they grow up to become adults. Yes, and I think that's a really prevalent. And it even sh we even have it at the end with the showdown between we see a, a kid holding a gun on somebody, and the police are there. And she's even with the narration bringing home that theme. I didn't even know what that. Like I said, I just thought thug life was just some term for being a badass. I didn't really. I, I, that's an interesting concept. Yeah, it's a very interesting concept. And I think, uh, uh, the once again, the author, Angie Thomas, does a great job pointing out, I think, some depth in Tupac. That, mm -hmm. uh, once again, I'm like you, I just was not aware of this uh, before reading or watching the movie. Um, she presents that as it, it's, it's targeted not only toward the, the broader culture, uh, the majority white culture, but I think it's also targeted toward inwards toward mm -hmm. that uh, uh, culture within Garden Heights uh, because the king lords, the, the guys that are kind of almost the de facto government in the area and, and also a, a large drug ring, right, they are inculcating hate as well, not only uh, against police uh, but against anybody that would dare snitch on them. And they have that very kind of mafioso uh, mm -hmm. protection racket going, right? And she sees killings that are uh, uh, a result of their uh, operations, the King Lord's operations. When she is a child, she loses two friends. This young boy, uh, also in that another very powerful scene at the end of that movie, who is protecting his dad. Mm -hmm. He's protecting his dad from... Uh, the head of the drug operation who the dad used to work for and you can see it with his tattoos he's protecting his dad but then she says 
this is an exemplification. The hate you have created by creating this drug running organization, drug dealing organization, and doing what you need to do to protect it in terms of not getting arrested and so forth, which includes killing people. It's affecting this kid. It's effing this kid. Mm-hmm. It's effing our culture. Powerful scene. Very powerful scene to it. Would you say that the ending of the film with the fact that at the end the police don't kill the child and actually they do arrest um, the king lord drug kingpin and it looks like they're making somewhat dent in the crime, is the ending, would you say, optimistic? An optimistic view of what's what 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 we're like a mirror of what we're going on right now. Yeah, I think so. And uh, I got, I got curious about authorial intent, and, and kind of looked looked into uh, Angie Thomas's thoughts on the subject. And she, her her basic uh, thoughts were, yeah, this is a difficult subject. It looks like it might even be an, an intractable problem, but I think it's soluble. And the only way to solve it is for everybody involved to be honest about it discuss it and try to work out resolutions for it so i think that is the message at the end and what's what is also interesting about this movie we you talked about it early on it is this idea of that star has about you know having star a and star b like on the, on the weekday she goes to this rich private school that's main, mainly white and she ta- she acts and talks like a different person than when it's on the weekends, and she's staying in Garden Heights. And it, I remember watching a, a Key and Peele episode, and they were talking about how it, it's I think the phrase is code switching. But what they would say they would when they would talk with their black friends, they would black it up. Yeah. They would you know sound more you know try to sound more black. You know. And even when I'm watch, I used to watch the Chappelle show. Like Dave Chappelle would do this hilarious impersonation of a white person, and he would be very prim and proper. He would be talking like this. It's <laughs> hilarious, but it is sort of how. But then you, she would say like some of the white people, specifically her friend um, Haley. Haley, yes, yeah. Haley. Yeah. How she's like she's sort of mimicking black culture. The way she talks, how she. One of her um, narrations, she says, "Oh, it looks like she just watched straight out of Compton again." Yeah. So either way, like it's not okay for the black girl to be acting black, but it's so okay and even considered cool for the white kid, rich white kids, to act black. Yes. Yes. This is a. a the, the podcast is called Philosophy at the Movies, so this is kind of the the tie-in here with a philosophical concept that I think is interesting, and it dates back to. Uh, a guy with a great name, William Edward Burghardt Du Bois. He has a very interesting concept that uh, he writes about in The Souls of Black Folks, a book he wrote from in 1908, I believe it was. No, 1903. Um, and he says in the book, it, it's, it, it's a unique feature of being a black American. He says you have a dual consciousness and I, I guess I would I would rephrase it a little bit because and I think he does this somewhere in the book it's a dual self-consciousness as a black person particularly at that time period the late 1800s early 1900s you know in the Jim Crow South especially that's where he actually ended up after he got his degree from Harvard right and then he ended up teaching down south 
at a place called Atlanta University. But he noticed, uh, especially when he was there, but he had noticed it before in his life, that he found uh, not only people he interviewed for his research, black people he interviewed for his research, but in himself, that you have this peculiar um, characteristic when you are out in public. You are conscious of yourself directly, as most of us are, right? Mm -hmm. Unless you're asleep and not dreaming, perhaps. Um, But you're also conscious of yourself as seen through, in his case, white Americans. So any and all actions he takes... He sees them simultaneously in these two ways. How am I being perceived by the white person? He actually puts it this way at one point. It's not a question. He just takes it. Part of his perception of his own actions is as seeing them through white eyes. And then the other, obviously, is seeing them through black eyes. And he calls this, like I said, double consciousness. And I think this movie does a very good job of showing that because she lives in two very different worlds. And I think visually they do a good job with this in the film too. The Garden Heights world is, you know, an older neighborhood. You can tell all the houses were probably built in the somewhere between 1920 and 1940 close together. At one time, this was a middle-class neighborhood. It no longer is right. Um, Contrasted with her high school, which is this very gleaming, modern, almost Bauhaus-looking building, blue lights, a lot of, and I think this is on purpose, white architecture, right? And it looks pristine and kind of clean, right? Mm -hmm. And she's living in both of these worlds simultaneously because her mother did not want her going to the public schools in the Garden Heights area. And she says something about that early in the film, uh, in, in her voiceover narration. Um, so she's always, uh, considering how she is being perceived and how she wants to be perceived in that school, in her day-to-day life. And she says things like, I don't want to be perceived to be too kind of aggressive and as it were black. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I watch the language I use there and I don't have to do that when I'm back home and I will use a different set of uh, vocabulary there than I would at the school. And she seems more or less content to do this. Live two separate lives until the killing of Khalil. It's, it is only in, only after that fact and a lot of soul searching and discussion with her boyfriend that she actually reveals the existence of her boyfriend to her parents. He is from that white world. He is a white kid. Um, so I think they do a, a really good job in that. I haven't read the novel, like I said, but uh, in the film of showing that dual consciousness. And they're able to get us to tap into it and, as it were, live in those shoes for a while. Uh, because I think all of us, to some extent, have that kind of experience, right? Mm-hmm. 
you know, your, your work role is different from your home or family role. And when you're at work, you will monitor how you behave in ways that you wouldn't when you were at home. So we've got some commonality there. But the extent to which you have to self-monitor, uh, uh, Du Bois says, is, is much more stringent in the case of the black person, especially back then when he was writing his books. But even now, you know, you, you hear tales of uh, black guys worrying about breaking their car breaking down in a predominantly white neighborhood because they don't know how it's going to be perceived, especially if it's at night or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So they do a great job. I, that might be the most important uh, success of this film is just giving people that don't live in places like Garden Heights who aren't black uh, a good feel for what it is like in the broader culture to be black. Yeah, and and another film that reminds me of that is Get Out. And there's a particular scene when Daniel, the main character, who's African-American, is at this white party, and he's the only black guy there. But then he sees another black guy there, and he immediately gravitates to him. And the first thing he says is, nice to see another brother here. So it is that sort of that uncomfortableness and then relief when, you know, there's someone else can probably share the same uncomfortableness and social awkwardness that you have in a situation like that. Yes, yes. And that that's probably another film we're going to have to do. Yeah, at some point. I, I, should, I should backtrack a little bit here and, and explain. We're, uh, one of the reasons we're doing this film for this series is uh, it, it was uh, recommended to me by more than one midshipman. I have, I have midshipmen do uh, uh, class projects, two class projects every semester, and they get to pick their own film and write an essay about it and create PowerPoints. And, and it, it's really a lot of fun for me to read these things. And I had two or three do this film and did really good in-depth analysis. This is where I uh, learned about uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, his views on double consciousness. So I thought, well, I need to do this one. So that one too yeah. um, is one that I've had projects done. So we're probably at some point going to end up doing that film too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're going to have to do Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I'm going to rag on you until we get to do that. <laughs> we will definitely yeah. do it. Yes, we will. All right. Um, getting close to the end of my our questions. Is there anything else you want to bring up? One thing um, that touches back to that conversation she has with her uncle Carlos. Um, a comedy sketch on the Chappelle show that I just watched recently that reminds me of that. It's sort of, uh, you know, two guys get arrested. One is played by Dave Chappelle, and he's like this ob almost a completely obvious drug dealer and dealing drugs. And the other is this, you know, uh, upper-class white guy. But the roles are reversed. The white guy, the upper-class white guy gets arrested, and he's treated like a black person during the arresting process. And then the you know the black drug dealer like all the communities like you know we're sorry to have you come in <laughs> like look we, we got to arrest you do you maybe just would you mind coming in like between two o'clock and seven o'clock on you know se seven for questioning and they're like we'll have to give you like a one month sentence and then the other guy and like the judge is like you're an animal I hope you, you're gonna get life in prison it's 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 funny but it's also you could definitely see the truth behind it. yeah sketch. it's making a good point and the best comedy i think a lot of the best comedy mm -hmm. is precisely that and 
uh, you know, you could do, I think, a, a, a lot of uh, interesting uh, uh, podcasts on uh, uh, maybe not philosophy and comedy, although that's mm-hmm. certainly doable, but even ethics and, and sociology and, and comedy. Um, that's Key and Peele get a, get a lot of mileage on this stuff. Um, the double consciousness thing and the re- role reversal thing. Um, those guys are uh, not only hilarious, but educating us. I really do think so. Mm-hmm. So, especially when you got to watch out for that dangerous black ice. Yes, that's right. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's great. Okay. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Sing so long and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. Mm